This church is probably the dearest in my heart of any church in the world, actually. So um, what I want to say, I want to... uh, I want to start by saying I don't have this worked out. In fact, I was crying while we were praising because I just felt like there's so much of this that I just can't see or do. I'm trying to grasp it, but I, I'm finding it hard, you know, and I'm old and old people, you know. No, actually, I'm younger than some of you, even if you're only 30. Like, that is true. (laughs) Some of you just think old, and you're just waiting for your bodies to get where your heads are. So don't do that. Don't be that, right? But I do want to say that everything that I've ever learned about justice began with this church and with the British church. At the Australian church, to a great degree, maybe not entirely, but to a great degree, is very unconcerned about justice, is very unconcerned about the world and its pains, and is mostly focusing on getting more people into the building, getting saved, and getting more buildings and getting more churches. And I know, and I've felt more and more aware of this as I've got older, that had I stayed in Australia, instead of coming here when the Lord sent us here, that is exactly what I would think because I've gone back to Australia and that's what's there. But you guys began to open up to me, the British church began to open up to me the responsibility that the Lord has given his people for establishing justice. And I know that the scripture that Pete used last week from James talking about the fact that God sees pure religion as firstly looking after the vulnerable and also trying to keep ourselves clean as well. But sometimes it's been really, um, it's been to the church's shame that we've just done the trying to keep ourselves clean bit and really done a pretty bad job of that as well. And so for myself, I want to say that in talking to you, I know that A, I don't have this worked out, and B, I know you don't either, but you as a church and the church in Britain is really, really trying to grasp this. And so I want that to be said. This is, I've never preached this message before. I sat up last night and this morning. Um, well, not justice, I mean, I've been working on it for a while since I knew that justice was the issue, but, you know, I've felt so aware of how totally inadequate I am to bring this message. And so, Father, we're just all really inadequate. Every one of us is just trying to work out, work it out. And, And, Lord, I pray that your word will not condemn, that there'll be no condemnation, because condemnation doesn't come from you. But, Lord God, that we would be triggered in our hearts and minds to be able to think what justice means to you and, therefore, what it means to us in Jesus' name. I really don't know whether I'm more sorry for myself having to think and pray it through and then develop the message or whether I'm more sorry for you for having to listen to the message and then think and pray it through. But, you know, one way or another. Um. 
So everything I've learned about God's heart for justice began here. And I believe that justice is one of the most pressing issues in the world today. Oh, thank you for putting that up because I forgot. Um, Children die of hunger. People still have to choose between eating and education. Millions of people are walking away from their homes and all their ornaments and their grandma's beautiful china crockery set and the table that they spent ages saving up for and their lovely garden that they've spent years working on. And they're walking away from those places with their children and they're carrying a few belongings and they're risking their lives to get to a place that is safer than the place they came from. And many never reach that safety and many never have the opportunity to fulfil their potential because there's no room or time to get a good job or... um, a good education, or any job maybe, or any education. And so, how do I make that work? Do I do that? What is it that I'm not doing? Are you doing it for me, or did I do that? (laughs) So the bank, Credit Suisse, reported in November 2017 that 1% of the world's population owns half of the world's wealth. And the other half of the world, three and a half, I mean half of the world, three and a half billion people, each have assets of less than £5,000. Those people account for 70% of the world's working age population and they own 27 three and a half billion people own 2.7 of the world's wealth. We, we, are among the richest people in the entire world. We. You might be trying to work out your mortgage, but you are very rich in comparison to the three and a half billion. You know, I read this week about a boxer wealthy boxer and an Instagram influencer married in the UK and they're holding a birthday party for their two-year-old child, which costs £90,000. And they said that they worked hard to get their money and it's their right to spend it however they want to. That's true, but it ain't right. Justice provides equity. Can I do the next one? Thank you. Justice provides equity. Can you see that picture properly? This is, it's not equality. So this is equality. Those, Those kids are all watching the game and they're all got the same size box, which means that one can just, you know, I go to a lot of houses. I go to a lot of houses, just let me tell you this, trying to put my makeup on in a mirror which I can only see that much of, you know, so I'm just telling you, I'll get up there trying to see if I got the last bit. So equality is having all the same size box, but equity is having the size of the box that you need to see the game. And so what that actually means is somewhere we've got to work out how to help people get the right size box so that they can see the game because there are multiple crises at the gate of every cultural and every culture and every nation right now, right across the world, war and famine 
are producing refugees in numbers that are completely untenable. Broken economies are, are producing um, refugees. Broken economies are driven by greed. People for whom the almighty dollar has a great deal more value than the life of one child or one refugee or one trafficked woman or one homeless person. And yet the Bible repeatedly shows us that God is saying, I want my people to have a heart for the poor and the disenfranchised and the stranger and the foreigner and those who don't belong. So when the prophet Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he's telling him, mate, you're going to go insane because of the way you've been leading. One of the things that he says to him in the hope that he can bring him back to a right way of leading, he says to him in Daniel 4.27, break free from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. That, that's the thing that Daniel says will, will help because good leadership is merciful to the poor. Let me just say that again because I'm very, very angry at the politicians across the world right now. Great leadership has mercy on the poor. And yet if you look at the state of the world right now, it's the ordinary people rather than the rulers who are showing mercy. There's a groundswell of ordinary people saying, we've got to do better than this. You know, um, Stu just mentioned the Bless Network in France. And, you know what, they, they just went out and started to feed some Sudanese refugees. That's all they did. And then somebody gave them an old ambulance and they were sort of being able to provide more from that, but the ambulance broke down. And then somebody else gave them a really good vehicle. And they're out there two or three times a week and they're feeding these Sudanese refugees, these young guys who basically don't belong anywhere. And I remember Seth saying to me when he and um, Sherelle went to France last year and just looking over at this group of guys on a roundabout in France just standing, not doing anything. And Seth and Rel were thinking, that could be us. But it's not. We're the ones that are driving past in the car and they're the ones that are standing around waiting for something to happen in their lives. And the only thing they've got right now is staying alive. And so there's a groundswell of people saying, this is not good enough. And I want to tell you, a, a lot of those people saying this is not good enough are not Christian people. And actually in many nations, and I cite America as one of those and Australia as another, in many nations the people most resistant to helping the poor and the disenfranchised and the vulnerable and the migrants and the strangers are the Christians. Which for me, I'm just like, God, why am I even in this country? I want to be here where these people care, where, where people are just like, you know, it matters. So then we're looking at, oh, I can't make that work. Looking at um, the, the Good Samaritan, I feel the Good Samaritan. I've never been interested in the story of the Good Samaritan my entire Christian life. It's just a Bible story that I heard. But just lately with this whole justice thing, the Lord has been bringing me the Good Samaritan story and not for the reasons that we think. And I'm going to read it to you. Just then a religious scholar stood before Jesus in order to test his doctrines. He posed this question. 
teacher, what requirement must I fulfill if I want to live forever in heaven? So for a start, it's, you know, Christians do want to live forever in heaven. Like, we want eternal life. Like, so this guy's got a a legitimate question. Jesus replied, because he knows the guy's a rule keeper. He knows the guy's, this is a guy who, who could just easily say, well, they should apply and come in by the proper way. Or they should never have taken drugs in the first place. Or what were they doing spending their money like that? That's, that's this guy. He's just like, he's a rule keeper. And so Jesus says to him, what does Moses teach? What do you read in the law? And the religious scholar answered, it states, because he knows it off by heart, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your passion, all your energy, and your every thought. And you must love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. Jesus says, that's correct. Now, just go and do that. But the, but the religious guy, knowing that he wants to justify himself, says to Jesus, what do you mean by my neighbor? Do you mean Fred, who lives next door? You know, Fred, Fred smokes and he gets drunk all the time. Or do you mean, you know, Bill and Lisa? I mean, you don't mean the whole street, do you? That's what this guy's saying. And Jesus replied and said, listen, and I will tell you. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when bandits robbed him along the way. They beat him severely, stripped him naked, and left him half dead. Soon, a priest, walking down the same road, came upon the wounded man. Seeing him from a distance... The priest crossed to the other side of the road and walked right past him, not turning to help him. Later, a religious man, a Levite, came walking down the same road and likewise crossed to the other side to pass by the wounded man without stopping to help him. Finally, another man, a Samaritan, came upon the bleeding man and was moved with tender compassion for him. He stooped down. And he gave him first aid. And he poured olive oil onto his wounds and he disinfected them with wine and he bandaged them to stop the bleeding. Lifting him up, he placed him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn. Then he took him from the donkey and he carried him to a room for the night. The next morning he took his own money from his wallet, not government not government subsidy, not the government's got to provide, not somebody else's, I'm going to go and do something good, so can you pay for it, please, the church or the government? No, he took his own money from his wallet and he gave it to the innkeeper with these words, take care of him until I come back from my journey. If it costs anything more than that, I will repay you when I return. And then Jesus says, so now, tell me, Which one of the three men who saw the wounded man proved to be the true neighbor? And the religious scholar responded, the one who demonstrated kindness and mercy. Jesus said, you must go and do the same as him. Now, there are some tremendously powerful points here. And I think you're just going to have to pardon me 
for crying all the way through this because it's my own conviction. It's my own conviction of what I'm not and what I don't do. And this is probably not going to be one of those yelly times and some of you will be very relieved. It's just because I can't stop leaking from my eyes. And so there's immensely powerful points here because the first is that the question came from a religious man who's trying to get the rules right because he figures if he gets the rules right, if he lives by the rules, then God will accept him. And we fall into that trap so easily. And Jesus says to him, you want the rules? Okay, tell me what Moses, the lawmaker, says about this then. You know, the first one's easy, love God with all your heart. But the second one is a doozy because it's tied to the first question. And this guy's like, you surely can't mean the whole street. And Jesus is like, no, I don't mean the whole street. I mean the whole world. I mean everybody that you don't agree with religiously. Everybody's got a different perspective of religion. Everybody who's out there living their life in a way that it disgusts you. Everyone that's got a different anything. That person is your neighbour. Everyone. Every, we... we are the people of God. We are the race of mankind. doesn't matter whether you're taller than me or whiter than me or blacker than me or greener than me or any other thing. We are one race, one race. So the intriguing thing is that not only were the Samaritans considered inferior by the Jews, so it was very, very bad that Jesus used a Samaritan as being an example but in verse 53 of the previous chapter, Jesus had gone into, a, he was going into a Samaritan village and they refused him entry. They wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let Jesus in. And James and John were so offended that they're like to Jesus, can we call down fire on them and just destroy them? Jesus is not going to let him do that. Not only did he not let them do that, instead of condemning him, he takes the Samaritans and he uses them, these people that the Jews looked down on and despised as being half-breed in their religion, as having mixed religion, of not knowing who God really properly was. And he takes that particular example of somebody who fulfills God's greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbour as yourself. And what Jesus is saying there is that anyone who wants to follow him has got to be willing to love, care for, feed, protect anybody else who doesn't think or believe or act the same as him. So the responsibility for fulfilling the second commandment is on the believer, because that's what we've been told to do, but anybody can fulfill it, the Samaritan. And I've got a lot to say about the way in which rich, developed, so-called Christian countries who are working so hard to protect their Christianness talk a lot but do very little about the desperate struggles of their neighbours. The nations, the top six countries that host refugees are Iran, Germany, Sudan, Uganda and Pakistan. They all host around one million people, give or take. Turkey hosts three and a half million people. You know, the only one of those countries that has any degree of wealth that is a developed country is Germany. 
It seems to me that the wealthier we are, the more determined we are to keep our wealth for ourselves. And let me just say this to you. God does not have a problem with us having money. He doesn't have any problem with that. He wants to bless us. But he does have very clear opinions on how we should use it. This scripture, Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10. It says, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field and don't pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Don't strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and don't pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So God doesn't mind the owner of the field living in a good house, driving a good car, going on holidays, but he wants them to help take care of the people who don't have a field or a car or a holiday, or a home. And that's what made the difference to Ruth when she returned to Israel with Naomi and the landowner, Boaz, instructed his staff not just to let the bits that fell just lie there, but he said to to his people, I want you to make sure that more drops than what would otherwise drop. How does that translate for us who buy our grain in a bag in the supermarket? Well, let me explain this to you. Most of us live to the very edge of our salaries. We have little room to move. Our finances are maxed out. We see a need, but we're so weighed down by financial commitments that we don't have room to to manoeuvre. We don't have any money that isn't already designated. And so our hearts become saddened or hardened. We feel guilty because we can't give. And so we shut our eyes to the need because we don't want to feel bad. So many of us are in overload with our cost of living. We have so many needs and those needs cost money. And this is interesting. Our needs increase with every pay rise. Every time we get a bit more money, we need a bit more stuff. We need a bit more things. There's never quite enough. Our credit cards are maxed out. Sometimes we're only just able to pay the interest. We're living to the limits of our budget, which is the very edges of our fields, and sometimes beyond that. And we grieve because we see real and desperate needs. We see deep poverty in the world around us, and we turn away and we sigh or we cry or we accuse them because it's their fault they got themselves into that. You know, Jesus never accused us because it was our fault we got ourselves into sin. We... We have no way of meeting those needs because we stripped our own vineyards bare. Do you know, it was when Rick and I were pastoring this church, and I don't know if the people that this is about are here today or not. I I hope you are because you changed my life just knowing that you did this. But when we were pastoring this church, I heard for the very first time about people who capped their salaries in order to give about people who earned good salaries, they had bonuses and they kept getting salary rises and all the rest of it. They had two good cars and they had a lovely house and they had a comfortable lifestyle with a couple of good holidays every year. But they felt that the Lord had said to him, you have enough, that's enough for you, you don't need any more. And so they capped their salaries at that level and they gave 
and they made a decision to give everything over and above that away. I can remember that guy handing me his bonus check for several thousand pounds saying, use this for Cherish. I was just blown away. That family has funded houses for HIV orphans. They've, they've funded a pig farm. They've contributed to the specific needs of other families within the church and outside of it. They've provided equipment for ministries. They, they've just done any number of projects. I, I don't even know. But I want to say this to you. You would never know that by looking at them. They're just ordinary people sitting in the seats. But they understand what it is not to use it all up, not, not, to, not to glean, not to harvest right to the very edge of the field, but leave something for the gleaners, leave something for the poor, for the strangers in the land. Now, maybe you can't cap your salary, but we all need a giving plan over and above our tithes. Our tithes, yes, that goes to the church. So you can't sort of say, well, I'll use some of the tithe over there. No, but we all need a giving plan to be able to give beyond, to be able to say, I'm going to give 5% from now on or 2% or 1% or every bonus check or when I do that spare time job or I'm going to start a business to, just so that I can give from that. I don't know how you do it. I just know that it's really good to have a plan, even if it's just the tiniest amount, even if it just means I have two coffees a week instead of five when I go out. So God doesn't require us to be poor. And so I really want you to know that he doesn't get any glory in people being broke. In fact, he places Christians into every sphere of society in order to reach every sphere of society. And there's no point in being homeless and knocking on the door of the mansion and saying, by the way, do you want to hear about Jesus who blesses everything you do? You know, that, that isn't going to work. God seeds us into different areas. But we are such creatures of extreme that we legalistically take one side of the Christian perspective on finances or the other. So we think we should have nothing or we should have everything. But God doesn't lay the law down over those things. He gifts us to be people who know what it is to work hard and be creative and develop businesses or, or do a really good job and get promoted and all the rest of the stuff so that we earn. I've got no problem with earning. I've got no problem with having money in the bank. I've got no problem with living in a good house or having a good car. What God wants is for us to know how not to glean right to the very edges of our field and how to have some left over to be able to give to the needs around us where we're making a decision to do what Jesus says when Jesus said, feed the hungry. So I know out of experience that when we give out, God always replenishes. He always does. I'm not saying if I give five pounds, he gives back 50. I'm not saying that because that's about I'll give five pounds so I can get 50 back. It, it, it isn't that. And then if we don't get 50 back, then we're just like desperately disappointed in God and we're like, that's the last time I ever do that. No, it's not. It's like how can I just repay? Not even repay. How can I be more like Jesus? How can I just give out of the little bit that I've got? And, and so... God is totally willing to provide our needs, but I think it thrills his heart when we ask him for more so that we can provide for other people's needs too. I remember hearing a preacher say, it's fantastic when you can stand up and say, God gifted me with a brand new pair of shoes. I didn't have the money to buy them and God gifted me with a brand new pair of shoes. But it's 
so much more astonishing to say, God gifted me with the money so that I could buy somebody 10, pair, 10 different people a pair of shoes each. It's far, far more thrilling to think, God gave me this so I could give it. And then there's that thing is, when he does give you more because you say, Lord, would you give me more so that I can give it? And he, if he does give it to you, don't say, oh, well, actually, I wasn't really realising, but we've actually got a few bills and um, next time, Lord. And he doesn't mean, if, if, if we ask him and he gives it to us, then actually it's incumbent on us to say, this actually isn't mine. I'm just the postman taking delivery and passing it on. See, the greatest enemy of justice is fear. Fear of not having enough for me, fear of getting into the same trouble as the other person, fear of losing, and sometimes those fears are warranted. Sometimes we do lose. Sometimes we do get into trouble. But faith requires courage. Faith requires courage. I think that courage is the underside and the ballast of faith. Because everything God ever asks us to do, we don't want to do. We've got a lot of reasons why not. We're afraid. So courage and faith, they're, they're just, they belong together. Can I have that next one, please? This is Carola Rackett. She's the German captain of the Sea Watch 3. She just got out of jail. She was put into jail for forcing her way through the Italian Navy blockade to bring to port 40 refugees that she found drowning off the coast of Libya. She was released after an international outcry. At this moment, 34,361 people have died making that perilous crossing. She saved 40 people from drowning. Is she a priest? Is she a religious person, a Levite? Is she a Samaritan? I don't know. But I do know that she ended up in jail because she refused to stand by and do nothing while she knew that there were men and women and children in the open sea in tiny leaky boats who very likely might not make it to shore. Next one, please. This is Professor Scott Warren. He's a lecturer in geography in Arizona University. He spends all his spare time hiking miles and miles into the desert, carrying gallons and gallons of water and food to leave for the refugees. He faces up to five years in prison now because he did that. Is he a priest? Is he a religious man? Is he a Levite? Is he a Samaritan? I don't know. But I know that he and other people like him regularly walk five or ten miles into the baking hot desert with temperatures of 46 degrees, carrying gallons and gallons and gallons of water to leave for people for whom the treacherous conditions of walking through that desert in the hope of finding safety and freedom is preferable to the conditions they've left behind them. 
there's an organisation called No More Deaths. So far, and he's a part of that, so far in the last two decades, no, so far though, th that group since it's been formed have found the remains of 32 people in the desert who just didn't make it across. In the last two decades since the Border Patrol was introduced, 7,000 sets of human remains have been found there in the borderland. And this is the terrible, terrible thing. Over the last four years, the border, nearly four years, the Border Patrol has destroyed 3,856 gallons of water left in the desert to save lives. You know, I don't know the answer to the problems in our world. But I do know that turning our back on suffering, scrolling past the painful posts, is not the answer. I do not know the answer to the overwhelming tsunami of millions of desperate people fleeing their homes with their children and getting in leaky boats, hoping that they'll get to the other side. But I do know that the answer begins with how can I help rather than how can we stop them from getting into our country and making life uncomfortable for us. The call to Christians to have compassion on the stranger, on the refugee, on the person who's different from us is completely unreasonable. It's completely unreasonable. But the things that God has done for us the way that he's cared for us and the fact that he, he left that incredibly beautiful home and came to live among us in our filthy, disgusting, broken state. That, that every, other, every other religion in the world demands a sacrifice from its worshippers. But our God was the sacrifice. That's totally unreasonable. So yeah, it's unreasonable what he's asking. The God who became a refugee when his father, his stepfather, heard that Herod was going to kill all the baby boys, felt the pain of the world that he came to save. They are his values. It's what he does. And he calls us to go and do likewise. And we have to be willing to let ourselves feel rather than just keep scrolling through and changing the channel. And I totally know that. There's sometimes when I just feel overwhelmed and I just feel like I can't bear to look at another painful thing. I just cannot bear it. And sometimes I do scroll past. And that's okay because I need to remain sane and you need to remain sane. So, you know, there's so much pain in the world that we can hardly bear it right now. But God calls us to care. He calls us to let justice matter. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Identify with those who are in prison as though you were there, suffering with them. And those who are mistreated, as if you could feel their pain. And the Aramaic translation says, As if you were people who wear their bodies. That's a lot of identification. Please show the next picture. This picture... It breaks my heart. It's broken my heart ever since I've seen it. It says, if this was your son, you would fill the sea with ships all by the millions, acting as a bridge to get it through. But don't worry. 
He's just a child of lost humanity, of dirty humanity, which makes no noise. He's not your son. Sleep peacefully. It's not yours. Do you know, I have three little grandsons over here. If that was my Jesse or my Leith or my Rockin', I would be banging the doors down of every government department saying, you have got to do something. You cannot leave my little boys out there like that. But it's not my son and I can sleep at night. He's not my grandsons. They're not kids that I love and cuddle. And so we can all sleep at night. God help us. If it was your son, you'd fill the sea with ships all by the millions, acting as a bridge to get it through. But don't worry. He's just a child of lost humanity, which makes no noise of dirty humanity. He's not your son. <laughs> Sleep peacefully. It's not yours. But one day it might be. I don't know if it will be or if it won't be. But I can see my little grandboys in that little boy and that's just overwhelming. And then the other thing that's overwhelming is I'll forget that and I'll sleep at night and it'll be all right and I'm not banging on the doors of every government department. Martin Luther King's favourite quote was Amos 5 verse 24. But let justice flow like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. All over the world, there are people like Jesus laying down their lives for justice. Are they priests? Some of them are. Are they religious people? Some of them are. And some are Samaritans who don't believe like we do or don't believe in any God at all, but they love their neighbours. See, Jesus is coming back. There are signs that all across our world that we're getting closer to the time when Jesus is coming back. But this is the point. I don't know when he's actually going to return. He could return in 100 years or in 1,000 years or in 15 years. I, I, don't, I have no idea when he's coming back. But I do know that I've only got this much of my life left. I'm going to be 68 at the end of the year I don't know, maybe I've got 12 years left, maybe I've got two years left, maybe I've got 15 years left. But it doesn't really matter to me when Jesus comes back because for you, for everybody else, because for me, whatever happens, he's coming back the day, that, for me, the day that I go to be with him. I've only got this portion of my life left to serve him and so do you. Like Pete said last week, pure religion isn't staying clean. Before that, it's about looking after the broken and the marginalised and the vulnerable. And somehow we have to work out how to play our part in that. We can't do all of it, but we can do something. We can let ourselves feel, rather than doing what the priest and the Levite did and be walking along the road and seeing pain, and crossing by on the other side, averting our eyes and hoping that he doesn't see that we, did, that we didn't see him, hoping that he doesn't notice 
that we ignored him. Instead of walking on with our eyes carefully focused somewhere else, we can look at that homeless person directly in the eyes, the one who's been beaten up by life regardless of how he got himself into that situation. And we can say, hi, how you doing? Having a good day? Are you hungry? And we can have already with us, maybe because we knew, we, we like the priest and the religious person and the Samaritan, we already saw him up there. So we can nip into, you know, a coffee shop and we can just pick up a sandwich and a packet of crisps and a banana and, and a bottle of water and we can say, you doing okay? You're hungry? Would you like something to eat? And just give it to him and say, wish him a good day. But more than giving her or him food, you're giving that person the dignity of two human beings who are making a connection. You don't have to give them all your money. You don't have to empty your wallet. You could, but you don't have to. And you know, something that they say about one of the greatest pains of homeless people is their status of in invisibility to we who are uncomfortable that they are there. But they are there. The world isn't the way that we wish it was. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the whole of creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the revealing of the children of God. Do you know what revealing means? It means being shown. We're all here. We're all here. This is about being seen to be here. This is about being seen to know that if justice matters to, to God, it matters to us as well. That means we have to care for people, not judge. We have to not find other people unworthy of God's love because they got themselves into that situation. Should never have taken drugs in the first place. You shouldn't have been out so late at night. Well, it's your fault for getting drunk. You shouldn't have made that stupid business deal. If you'd been kinder to the person you're married to, they would have stayed. Instead of doing that, that we just find a way, and this is the thing, this church has so many people in it who are determined not to walk by and cross on the other side of the road. You know, there was a woman, a person in, in Uganda that heard God say, you could do something about this if you wanted to. And this entire church, which was much smaller then, rose up and said, yeah, we could. And they just began to give, give little bits of money. We save, we've got a hundred, hundred pound here and 500 pound there and, and, and you know, a thousand pound and 1200 pound and another 700 pound. And it grew together like that. Now it's astonishing what God has done, but it started somewhere. Big love in Romania, Shu and M and others just going over there and, 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 and holding their own little kids by their hands. And the Lord's saying, those little kids on the rubbish tip are no different from your little kids that you're holding hands. And so now we've got big love and we've got all these football clubs and businesses and everyone that just cares about Romania. Some of those people are priests and some of them are religious people, but some of them are Samaritans, aren't they? Let's not look down on the Samaritans. 
Let's not look down on the people who aren't doing it because God didn't because God told them to. You know, reach every generation with Gavin and Rhea McKenna. They're not saying knife crime, that's terrible, stay away from that area. They're walking into it and they're saying, how can we make a difference? How can we actually reach into these places and help kids see that there is another way, that knife crime isn't the answer? You know, Andrea Barnes, I don't even remember where you go, Andrea, but all over this church, there are people who are going or people who are supporting the people that go, people who are giving, giving money or giving resources, giving prayer support, giving love, you know, or, or going or not going. A lot of people putting their time and their money and their effort to see justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. The Bible says in James, don't just say to people, be warm and be fed and bless you. You know, see you later. I'm going home to my, to my nice warm bed. The Bible says faith and works belong together. I, I know this, Pete. I know this church does this. But I also know that we, we, we don't all individually really understand that we have a place in this. And I just want to finish with something Nelson Mandela said. Those two men, those last two men, are my heroes. If I could live and die like those two men, I'd be a happy woman. Nelson Mandela says, sometimes it falls on a generation to be great. We can be that generation. You know, I'm old, you're young, but we're all this generation. As long as you're breathing, you're this generation. You're not too old, you're not too young. You know, it's just like, Sometimes it falls on a people to be great. You can be that people. I can be that people. And so, Father, I just come back to you, Lord God, with that thing, that, that piece of poetry. Awful, ugly, terrible, broken, unholy, unlovely piece of poetry. If it was your son, you'd fill the sea with ships all by the millions acting as a bridge to get it through. But don't worry. He's just a child of lost humanity, of dirty humanity which makes no noise. He's not your son. Sleep peacefully. He's not yours. Lord, I pray for us as a people. And Lord, while I pray for this church that is profiling justice and giving so much room. I pray for the church in Australia that doesn't hardly care. And Lord, I ask you that by your spirit, you would raise up your people. Lord God, like it says in Romans, that the whole of creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for us, the people of God, to be shown. And we don't show that by our clean living by itself, Lord, but we show it by caring for the people who are just totally unable to do anything for themselves. And Lord, I pray again, I ask you again, Lord God, that there be no condemnation in this message, that there be no condemnation. I thank you that your word says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. 
And so I, 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 I refuse condemnation, the right to touch us as a people. But God, I pray that you would rise in our hearts as it has risen in different people's hearts anyway, Lord, at different times, Lord, that in our own hearts, even if it's just choosing not to walk by on the other side of the road when we see a homeless person sitting there waiting for somebody to meet their eyes. Lord, even if it means saying to somebody who's going out to Eastern Europe or to Africa or one of those countries, look, I put aside 100 quid. I just want you to take it with you and do with it what is a really good thing. Lord God, that we would be a people who don't just keep scrolling past, but we would be a people who are just like, God, help me to care. I really, really need you to help me to care. And Lord, that by the power of your spirit, we won't be people who pass by on the other side of the road. And we won't be afraid of the future if we do help or if are part of something that you're doing. Lord, we won't be afraid of it, but that we will walk, we will walk in freedom, freedom to give, freedom to live in a giving way, pouring out your presence just by giving a sandwich or giving 100 quid or five quid. Lord God, I just pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to get a hold of what it is to be your people with the understanding that justice matters, cleanness matters, yeah, justice matters too. Lord, pour out your anointing on us, I pray, for a different way that we will show something different, that people will not be able to look and despise the church because it only cares about its buildings and it only cares about its services and it only cares about, about cleanness and fun and, and being joyful all of which is just exactly right, Lord God, but, but people can look and see the church is getting its hands dirty. The church is getting its feet dirty. The church is not afraid to go into the very most broken places. It's not worrying about being infected or infested. It, it's, it's concerned with bringing Jesus Christ where he otherwise would not be seen and shining a light in the darkness. Lord, let it be unto us, I pray, according to your word. In Jesus' name.